This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the 2015 season of the Math Ed Podcast. I'm excited to be back for another year, and I'm also excited to have with me Bill Zahner, who was actually the first ever guest of the Math Ed Podcast back in episode 1201. Bill, thanks for coming back. Wow. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. And I... Uh... Yeah, I'm honored that I got the uh, second invitation. <laughs> Bill is now an assistant professor at San Diego State University and a member of the Center for Research in Mathematics and Science Education. We're going to be talking about Bill's new article in Educational Studies in Mathematics, The Rise and Run of a Computational Understanding of Slope in a Conceptually Focused Bilingual Algebra Class. So, Bill, this article really focuses on Miss V's Algebra Classroom. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just... Tell us the story of how you became so interested in Miss V and what it was about her classroom that led to you focusing this study on her class. Well, so the background uh, is that I this is growing out of my dissertation research. So this article is um, published out of the data that I collected when I was a graduate student at uh, UC Santa Cruz. And when I was a graduate student, they had us do what was called a second-year project, a research project. And my interest was in how students talk to each other during group discussions. And so I went out to a local sixth grade classroom uh, in a bilingual school and recorded the sixth graders talking about math. And uh, what I found out was that when kids are given uh, routine calculations to do, they spend a lot of time talking about long division. Mm. And uh, that wasn't exactly what I was looking to observe. I wanted to see examples of how students engage in mathematical reasoning. So fortunately, that was a relatively low-stakes event. That was a a project I did as a student. And Mm -hmm. for my dissertation, uh, I took the lesson that I learned, which was I needed to go see a location where the phenomenon I wanted to observe was likely to happen. And so Mm -hmm. I was interested in students engaging in mathematical discussions and doing things like reasoning and sense-making. And, of course, now we talk about these perhaps in terms of the common core state standards and the standards for mathematical practice. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to see those kind of things happening uh, in real mathematics classrooms, and particularly with linguistically diverse uh, students. So I did some investigation asking around with local teachers and teacher educators to find uh, who was doing those kind of practices in their classrooms. And uh, people recommended Ms. V. Uh, She came recommended very highly and actually had a... um, very strong reputation, both locally and nationally. She's been on uh, a number of boards and and so on. So that indicated to me that she was a teacher who was likely to be doing uh, the, the kinds of practices that I wanted to see and that her students would be doing those as well. So that's what drew me to her classroom. And uh, I was also interested in, in the issues of language and language diversity. And so by an ad hoc arrangement, uh, her classroom was a bilingual classroom where she taught all the newcomers, the students who had immigrated from uh, primarily Mexico, but also uh, Central America. And she would teach in both Spanish and English, or she could teach in both Spanish and English, I should say. And so through an informal arrangement, the scheduler put many of the students who were enrolled in the English language development course, so the newcomers, into her math course because they were able to then continue their math education 
using uh, their first language as a resource. So that was a second reason I chose Ms. B's classroom. Mm-hmm. So you've identified this conceptually focused uh, bilingual algebra class, and then you focused the study on the mathematical topic of slope, which is, of course, a very important topic in algebra, but also beyond algebra. So you're looking at mm-hmm. slope and how the student's understanding of slope developed throughout kind of a unit that was uh, focused on slope. And then you were looking at that student development, but also tying it to the actual things that were happening in the classroom, like the kinds of discussions and the kinds of activities or mathematical practices that the students were engaged in. What was the data you collected to be able to kind of track those things that you were interested in? Yes, uh, boy, just hearing you talk about what I did makes me think that I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So my goal, right, was to trace... Uh, in a sense, the development of students' understanding of slope as a rate of change um, and connecting the slope of a line to the rate of change of the variables connected by the function. And so that was kind of the overarching goal. And so to do this, it was a mixed-method study. So I shouldn't say mixed methods in the sense of I didn't do any kind of quantitative uh, assessments, but I mixed ethnographic observations of the classroom so sitting in the back of the classroom and letting Miss V kind of do her thing, so I wasn't intervening in the classroom, mm-hmm. um, but instead asked Miss V, when do you teach these important concepts, and can I come in for you know the, during that unit and watch the whole unit from start to finish? Right. And so in the classroom, I had uh, two video cameras running, and uh, I was sitting in the back taking field notes, and occasionally another graduate student was there with me helping out also taking field notes and keeping track of what was happening in the class, who was there, uh, what what they were talking about, and if anything particularly interesting kind of jumped out at us, uh, we made sure to make notes of that and and cross-reference the times. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had two video cameras, and both of them were focused on groups of students sitting in the classroom. So Ms. B's classroom was arranged, you know, as some math teachers do, they have pods of tables. So she had, uh, I think, seven or she had eight pods at her room, seven were occupied in groups of four. And so two of those groups were the focal groups for this study. Um, and one of them happened to be four students who spoke primarily English in school, and one of them happened to be four newcomers who spoke primarily Spanish. Hmm. Um, and Miss V put those groups together. So the cameras were focused on the two groups during small group interaction, and then uh, I was sitting next to one of the cameras so that during whole class interaction I could report what she was doing on the board. Uh, or what the, whoever was speaking was doing uh, up in the front of the room. The other data I collected were a series of group discussions that occurred outside of class. So I took those two focal groups of students, and I wanted to trace the development of their understanding of the slope as a rate of change. And to do that, I needed to give them the same tasks, or I wanted to give them similar tasks at the beginning and at the middle and at the end of the data collection to really trace how their reasoning about slope developed across time. And so one of the tasks I use is a classic that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. It's called hexagon desks, uh, or also hexagon chains. Uh, It's been used on the NAEP and uh, I think the Balanced Assessment Project and many other places uh, where you have a series of hexagons pushed together. And the question is, you know, if one hexagon has a perimeter of six, and two hexagons pushed together as a perimeter of 10, continuing the pattern, you know, what we get with three hexagons together for the perimeter of four, five, and so on. And so I gave the students a group of three tasks, but one of them that I gave consistently was hexagon desks. 
it's called hexagon desks because it was stated in terms of the number of students who could sit around a, a hexagon table or a chain of two hexagon tables pushed together. And the task included multiple representations of so tables, graphs, and equations, and different types of generalizations. So asking the student to generalize to uh, a low number that they could count to, and then asking them to generalize to uh, a high number, like what would be the number of students you could sit at, at a chain of 100 desks. And then I asked them to create a function, an equation out of this. Um, so I said to write a general equation in terms of n desks. And then finally said, you know, if you plotted those and you uh, connected the dots, and I had a little hedge, didn't quite uh, put it into the uh, thing for the students, but said, you could connect the dots and make a line, although we know that that would be actually a discrete graph. But if you did connect the dots and make a line, it looks a lot like the lines they were doing in their uh, algebra class. And then ask them, what would be the slope of that line, and how would that slope, how would that connect to the uh, problem situation? So that task provided me some really good evidence of how the students' reasoning about the slope as a rate of change developed across time, because the question asked them not only to calculate the slope, um, but then also to explain the meaning of the slope back in relation to the problem context, which was uh, students sitting at a row of desks. And so, you know, one possible answer might be that the slope is four because when you add one new desk, there are four new available spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so I collected that data at the beginning, middle, and the end of the classroom observations. And my goal was to trace the students' development of their mathematical reasoning across time, looking at both the nature of the answers they gave, or the answers they gave, and then also the kind of reasoning that they engaged in, um, both as a group and um, individually, as they came to agreement on these solutions. And so for this paper, I'm really focusing on the type of answers that they produced, and then looking to connect that back to the classroom data, so to make a connection between what they did in those small group discussions and what happened uh, in the class where they were learning about these concepts. Mm -hmm. And to tie it all together, you used the Cultural Historical Activity Theory, or uh, abbreviated CHAT. So the mm -hmm. CHAT framework helped you to do this, this goal that you just stated. And it also brought in a broader context of kind of the school community. So could you say why you ended up using the CHAT and how it kind of helped you achieve your goals for the study? Oh, sure. So that was, uh, I think, an interesting evolution in the study. So originally, I think my framework was more along the lines of looking more narrowly at the interactions within the classroom and what happened uh, in terms of the development of the student reasoning about slope. So that was initially my focus. Um, and I would say that the big conundrum that popped out at the end was when I looked at the development of the student's reasoning, what I observed was that they were able to calculate the slope on this problem and on many problems in class especially when there was no context, but even with context, they were able to pull out the slope of a line by selecting two points and kind of going through this computational routine of finding the rise, finding the run, and putting that into a fraction. But interestingly, that wasn't Ms. V's stated goal for the unit. In fact, she really wanted her students to be able to articulate a meaning for the slope. And so there was a mismatch between what her students appeared to understand at the end of the unit and what Ms. V was hoping her students would understand. Mm. Um, and at that point, I was faced with a little bit of a conundrum. So one, you know, one interpretation is the students just didn't get it, or you know, Ms. V must have made a mistake in how she presented the material. But I felt like there was more going on there, and from my ethnographic observations, I had a lot more data about 
the situation, the school, and the context, and the broader picture. And that's where the cultural historical activity theory came in. So you can look at uh, individual reasoning or even a group reasoning by focusing on the people, the subject, and the object and goals of what they're working on and what their intended outcome is, and the mediational means that they're working upon, they're working with, you know, whether it's graphs or calculators or, uh, or what have you. Mm-hmm. But chat attempts to get beyond the individual or that or the, the core situation of the subject, object, and mediational means and says, sure, that's happening, but it's happening within a larger context and a larger social milieu that includes uh, communities and rules and division of labor. And so to understand what's happening within this micro-interaction, whether it's happening you know, moment to moment or even across a couple weeks, it's also helpful to look at the broader community, the broader rules that are governing the situation, um, and how labor is divided up uh, among the students, uh, between the students and the teacher, and then even looking even bigger at the teacher and the school and the district, uh, and the district and the state, and so on. Hmm. And so cultural historical activity helped me make sense of how Miss V's teaching was, in several important ways, shaped by what happened at the broader context of the school level and the district level. So that's where the the chat theory came in, was in a sense by looking at my data and saying, I'm not quite capturing the complexity of this whole situation just by looking at the students' interactions at the beginning and at the end of the unit and looking into the classroom. And I need to have a broader viewpoint, kind of zoom out a little more, to understand exactly what I observed or to make better sense of what I observed, I should say. My guest is Bill Zahner from San Diego State University. We're talking about his article in Educational Studies in Mathematics, Volume 88. Bill, now I'm, I'm wondering if you can just talk us through uh, when you looked at those student groups, when you pulled them out to actually kind of trace their slope understanding, what did you see in terms of their talk about slope? Um, so that I'd say that one of the main clear findings was that the students were able to calculate the slope of a line by the end of the uh, the unit. So if the goal was for the students to produce correct answers, then this class was a success. The students were able to take a problem, you know, given two points, com- compute the slope of a line, or given the graph of a line, compute the slope. So uh, in that sense, they were successful. In another important sense, though, they struggled to interpret the slope as a rate of change. Um, and the evidence for that was both their responses to the hexagon desks problem, where one of the questions on the task said, what is the meaning of the slope of the linear model in terms of the situation? Mm-hmm. And then on a subsequent question, which I don't talk about so much in the paper, but uh, a subsequent task was a distance time graph, and both groups really struggled to make sense of the slope of a distance time graph in terms of velocity. Mm-hmm. So that indicated to me that Although this class was successful in some important ways, there are also some important uh, disconnects going on. What I also noticed when I looked back into the classroom data was that there was a pretty significant shift in Miss V's teaching about a week after she introduced the idea of slope. Hmm. And so I traced through the classroom data and looked at how Miss V's talk about slope and rate developed across the uh, couple weeks when she introduced it. So initially, Miss V introduced the idea of slope using applied problems from IMP. Uh, And these are problems where, for example, the students are given data about 
how far a group of uh, people have traveled over a certain number of days, and then they're asked to talk about the meaning of the slope. And so what I noticed at first is that Ms. V was constantly highlighting ideas like the amount of you know, y per x. And you know, one of the problems that I think I cite in the paper is uh, uh, an equation y equals 12.5x, where uh, y is the number of pounds of beans that they need for the trip, and x is the number of people in the group. And she really emphasizes that the 12.5 times x, the 12.5 indicates the amount of beans per person, or how much beans each person is going to consume across the trip. Hmm. So that was the initial way that she introduced slope. Um, and then I noticed a pretty radical shift uh, about a week later. And in that shift, Miss V transitioned to using problems that really had almost no context. In fact, some of them were um, photocopied pages of the old algebra book that I use as a student, so I was quite familiar with it. Um, <laughs> where you're just given two points, find the slope of the line, or given a graph, mm. uh, calculate the slope. So that really jumped off, you know, as a as a researcher to me. I said, "Wow, something odd is going on here. I need to understand what what what's happening here, and I want to understand why Miss V is making this uh, this sudden shift." Um, and so that's where there was an interesting shift happening in both the classroom discourse and I think in what the students were then taking away from it. And I wanted to trace that and understand that a little bit better. So in reading the paper, you, you, you know, give these examples of, of once there was this kind of almost curricular shift to these different kinds of problems that she was bringing in, then you noticed these words rise and run became very important. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw with those words coming into play? Um, yes. So, uh, and I, I titled the paper The Rise and Run of a Computational uh, Understanding of Slope. I don't know if it's a, a pun or not, but um, you, know, you can think of it arising and, and continuing in the class. And of course, in uh, traditional math books or mini math books, uh, we equate slope with rise over run. And I had a conversation with Ms. V where she said to me explicitly, I absolutely hate rise over run. I don't want my students using that expression because she felt like it m minimized the conceptual meaning of the slope. Mm -hmm. um, and so she was really wary of introducing a calculational uh, routine too soon because that would be what the students would take away. Mm -hmm. um, so what was fascinating to me was that some of the students, of course, this is ninth grade, and, and some of these students have already taken algebra or pre-algebra or courses where slope has already come up, so they or they have older siblings, so they all knew, or not all of them, but several of them knew the expression rise over run, and Miss V would always revoice that. She'd always say, rise over run, do you mean the amount up and the amount over? So she was trying to highlight more about what it was actually telling you about the graph, um, but still staying on the level, I would say, of, of connecting to the, uh, the physical movement on the graph rather than the conceptual meaning of the, the slope as a rate of change. And so there was this shift, especially when the problems were uh, not the applied problems from IMP, but these decontextualized problems. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, in a decontextualized problem, it's difficult to put the meaning of the slope back in, right? I mean, if you talk about each one unit change in X, there's this much change in Y. That's not necessarily a very relatable way to explain this to a newcomer, to a person who's new to the, to the topic. And so I think there was a real tension there. And that's, in a sense, that the, the fundamental tension that I felt in this kind of contradiction was 
Miss V's desire to highlight the conceptual meaning of slope while simultaneously feeling the need to make sure that her students could do the calculations so they would be successful on the upcoming district benchmark test. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, for me, a sense where the light bulb went on when I said, what's going on here and why is this shift happening? Um, you know, mm -hmm. Here's a teacher who has stated she wants to teach conceptually, who I know can teach conceptually, um, but who appears to be kind of turning on a dime uh, halfway through the unit and shifting into a real procedural approach to, to teaching mm -hmm. this content. Um, and I was trying to make sense of that of that shift. And so that was where I saw the broader context coming in very clearly and mm -hmm. also where I, I saw a connection to an idea that I read about in graduate school and thought about but then uh, hadn't come back to in a couple of years, which was the idea of what's called boundary objects. Mm -hmm. um, and boundary objects are not exactly out of chat theory, but they've been used in chat studies as a way to think about how different activities and systems interact. And so that was kind of my next step in the evolution of my thinking was, okay, how do I understand this shift in Ms. V's teaching and the apparent contradiction in what her students are learning between what she said she wanted to teach and what it appeared her students had taken away? And mm -hmm. uh, that led me to thinking about the boundary objects as a way of understanding that. Yeah, so which boundary objects kind of gave you the most sort of mileage or the most insight into what you were interested in? So... Probably the most uh, important one was the district benchmark tests. And I think that this is um, a fairly common thing, particularly in schools that are um, you know, considered, and I, I don't like using this terminology, but you know, there are schools that are either considered failing or considered underperforming. There's you know, lots of different words that we use in the bureaucratic uh, education world to describe these schools. And so the school where Ms. V taught was one of these schools, um, you know, where the students had not met the state-mandated requirements for the uh, high-stakes assessments. Mm. And one of the responses to that reality is that the school was then called a program improvement school, and there were serious sanctions that were threatened, you know, everything all the way up to uh, the school being taken over if the students' test scores didn't improve. And there were also actions taken, and one of them was to supplement the curriculum with uh, a series of what they called benchmark tests. And so an external um, consultant had given the school uh, a series of tests that were supposed to be administered at the end of each unit to give the teachers kind of the information they needed to develop their instruction around uh, what was going to be showing up on the eventual spring tests, the statewide tests. So. The benchmark test that was coming up at the end of the unit, uh, when I took a look at it, and in fact I think I have a copy of it in the appendix of the, um, of the paper, the benchmark test was really a series of just rote calculations on problems with no context, or I shouldn't say rote, but bald calculations uh, mm -hmm. on problems with no context. So although Ms. V did not explicitly mention the benchmark test as shaping her instruction, it certainly appeared that what was on that benchmark test uh, reflected or had a, a strong parallel to what happened in the classroom in the weeks leading up to it. And so that's where I see this boundary object happening. So the benchmark test is a boundary object in the sense that it coordinates actions across levels of activity. Uh, so within the classroom, there's one level of activity, and then mm -hmm. within the school and the district is a, a different level of activity. And here right. the same object played different roles for different groups. 
So in Ms. V's class, it was going to be the end of the unit test. But for the district, this was going to be also their assessment of, is this class on track to produce students who are going to pass the test, mm. the, the statewide test? Yeah. And so the same object was serving different purposes. Very often we see descriptions of boundary objects in the literature thinking about them as facilitating communication across different practices, um, you know, groups of scientists and you know, citizen volunteers, for example. Um, and in this case, it certainly facilitated interaction, although I wouldn't necessarily say um, in ways that were intended for, for all, all parties. Um, right. So it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, unfortunately not a story that is, is as happy as I'd like it to be. But I think it's also an important story, and becoming more so, I think, as more and more uh, states and schools are adopting this idea of benchmarking uh, their performance. Um, and it's worth kind of thinking about what happens when you do that, and what do you choose for your benchmarks, and, and who gets to choose that, and what's the process for that. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the, I think, one of the really important kind of implications of this, of this case, is that illustrates a, a, a case where the benchmark test shaped the students' opportunities to learn in important ways and appeared in some ways to really inhibit the depth of their uh, conceptual development about slope because there was a huge emphasis on developing this procedural fluency um, and assessing that alone. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to imagine what if the benchmark test looked more like the IMP problems? How would instruction look different then? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's easy enough to imagine good and bad scenarios, right? But it's an interesting kind of thought experiment to kind of play through that, uh, play through that idea. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it wasn't, you know, the happiest story that it could have been. But on one end of things, if if your goal is the procedural fluency, and if that's what you're all about, then this is kind of a happy story because it sounds like Miss V was pretty successful in bringing a lot of students to have success on the procedural side of slope. It just becomes a sadder story if your goal is really for the conceptual side, which, as you said, it was your goal and why you're interested in these things, and it was Miss V's goal. And so then it now becomes this, you know, more of a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be, I mean, I hope we're not overstating it. I think these are not, like, irreversible uh, situations. No. And, and many of us have probably had years of, uh, you know, uh, different types of, of math instruction and, and come out with understandings in the end. But I do, you know, I see some interesting parallels. There's a, um, a Schoenfeld article named uh, When Good Teaching Leads to Bad Results. And, you know, I think he makes the point, too, that uh, what students learn in a class and whether or not that is what we want them to learn is a really important thing to, to pay attention to. So students who might look competent at producing answers um, may not be developing the types of mathematical reasoning skills that we are hoping for, and again, you're now thinking about our current uh, climate, you know, in the CCSM kind of aligned world, I think that we're really hoping for more reasoning and sense-making and, and increasing that focus, um, and, you know, having students engage in these mathematical practices. So it is true that uh, Ms. V students develop this procedural fluency, and that is, you know, as the NRC's uh, adding it up has, you know, kind of that framework of mathematical proficiency. It's, it's part of mathematical proficiency. But I was also hoping, and I think that there was some important stuff lost by not assessing uh, other types of mathematical proficiency, um, whether it's conceptual understanding or adaptive reasoning or so on. So giving the students opportunities to demonstrate that. 
And so that's where I think that one of the broader lessons about the design of these benchmark tests and so on is a really important consideration. Um, and I and I fear sometimes that these uh, these assessments are produced outside of the realm of control of the teachers who are, you know, trying to, to reach some goals. Um, and if there's a mismatch between the teacher's goals and the assessment, then uh, in the end, I think the assessment basically trumps, um, particularly as we add higher and higher stakes to these assessments. So, you know, for readers of the article, my, my one of my theoretical goals was to, to connect the macro-level policy and what's happening with the, the education for students uh, like the students in Miss V's class to what happens on student learning. So what kind of opportunities to develop an understanding of the mathematics are made available to the student? And so that's where I hope is one of the big takeaways, that, that these decisions about assessment and about how often we assess and where and in what form and for what purpose really do influence what happens in the classroom and really influence uh, what students are going to eventually end up, end up learning. So they also, I would say that there is some some kind of uh, you know silver lining on this too, and um, you know Alan Schoenfeld and his his group has done a lot with the mathematics assessment project, and um, there are many others who have done, I think, really great work on developing rich assessments. So like David Foster's group, also the Silicon Valley Math Initiative, developing really great assessments that give us more information about students' understandings, their procedural fluency, and their dispositions and so on towards mathematics and the ways that they engage in the practices. Um, so maybe another takeaway kind of on the brighter side is that, well, what can you do? And I think these are some of the good, you know, good resources that are out there for uh, teachers and curriculum developers and you know, educational leaders to look at and think about how assessment can be more than simply taking the temperature, but actually doing part of the work of instruction as well. So that's not necessarily in the paper, but when I think about one of the implications, that's how I how I kind of see this playing out, and what I tell teachers when they ask me, okay, so what should I do? Hmm. Because I think it's an important uh, important issue to address. Mm -hmm. Bill, thanks so much for talking to us about that study. I do want to ask you a more personal question. Um, I asked you before, back in episode twelve oh one, about your kind of alternate career, so people can listen to that if they're interested in what what you would have done if you weren't in math ed. Now, because you're resettled over on the West Coast back in California, I wanted to ask you what it is that you've kind of enjoyed the most now about being back in California or back in the Southwest. Oh, sure. So I am, uh, yeah, just recently relocated from Boston to San Diego. And uh, I have to say that I, I really miss my colleagues in Boston and my um, students and colleagues at Boston University were really a, a great great place to be uh, and miss them all dearly. Um, I'm really excited to be back in California to be closer to family, so both my wife and I are from, uh, from the West Coast originally. So I have to say, you know, hands down, the most important uh, thing for us is having that uh, proximity to family and the opportunity to be nearby. Um, and then uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's really nice to be able to wear a short sleeve shirt in January, but uh, you can probably <laughs> take that out of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the episode. <laughs> no, that's all right. People need to hear that, I think. <laughs> uh, I'll say, too, uh, I'll just have one on a more serious note. I'm also really excited to be um, to be at Crimsey at San Diego State and to have such, uh, such wonderful colleagues here. 
and uh, great opportunities to continue my work with issues of language and language diversity in mathematics. And of course, uh, San Diego is a, a great place to do that when you're right on the border and have um, you know, essentially a, um, an international city here. And it's a, a really interesting place, uh, both in terms of our connection with Mexico and the Tijuana area and um, kind of the whole region. And then also the city of San Diego itself is also a, a magnet for immigrants from all over the world. Um, and so having uh, the diversity here is a really great opportunity from both a research and, and teaching perspective to affect you know, the education of, of many students. And so uh, that's a real honor and a, and a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a pleasure for us to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Bill, and have a great semester. Well, thanks, Sam, and uh, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.